Joe comes across as kind of simple, but he yeah. does have a lot of depth. There are things that are hiding underneath all of the quiet desperation with this guy. It's amazing how when you get out of situations like that and you're finally on the outside looking in, that's when you realize how bad it was. He's mastered something that is a real enemy to religion and religious control, and that's a little thing called gratitude. After a lot of years, I seriously started to wonder if maybe, just maybe, there was more depth to the messaging here than I ever gave this movie credit for, and I kind of think that there is. The message here, I think, is that you can't rely on other people to fix your problems. You can't just lay it all at the feet of an individual. You have to take responsibility. I don't wish ill of people of faith, but I sure don't see the bad in having them watch their faith crumble around them if that's the wake-up call it takes to understand a thing or two. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And it's time to get unbound. It's almost time to crack open a nice cold jump and listen to a story of a guy who had a lousy job and maybe learn a thing or two about things like responsibility and the futility of leaving the task of sorting out your own shit to someone or something else. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And this week, we're bringing you our review of Joe versus the Volcano. And even I was surprised at just how much of this movie really relates to the things we talk about around here. All kinds of subtleties in the narrative that make the point that we can't scapegoat anyone into solving life's problems for us. We'll take a look at that theme and others as we go. But first, that's stealing. Do you copy? Make America stupid again. And the Aussie who cried COVID in a Christian's Behaving Badly segment I'm calling Fractured Hamilton, Halting Free Speech, and a Side of Rotten Ham edition. Yeah. So, okay, well, you got something better? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, they're all pretty rotten today. Yeah, they are. But really, what about this religion isn't? Yeah, true. You know, just think about it. So yeah. since I already teased the first one, let's start off with a story that I have subtitled Copyright Wrong. <laughs> Thou shalt not steal? But what if I have a good reason? Or, well, a bad reason? Or a reason? I mean, it's just music and props and costumes. Those ideas are invisible. So not it's to not, Disney. It's not really stealing, is it? Well, it depends on who you ask. I'm pretty yeah. sure Disney would say yes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Christians give the worst reasons for doing anything. And they hardly ever get called out on it. But it looks like the Dor McAllen Church in Texas might not get off scot-free for stealing and performing the musical Hamilton. Not a lame Christian parody. This was a fairly high-budget production. I saw some of the promo they aired at their church one Sunday morning, and it looked so close to the production on Disney+. The music is really the same. The costumes are also exactly the same. Everything about the production was, like, duplicated. No one is getting permission to perform Hamilton yet. Of course not. I mean, it was recent that Rent got permission. You know, schools and things were starting to get permission for, like, an edited version of Rent. I know, right? And that was, what, close to 30 years ago now? I don't even want to think about that. I don't want to think about it either. (laughs) 
Of course, what isn't the same is some of the lyrics because, well, these are Christians. <laughs> it's really, oh really cringy. They insert a scene where Hamilton meets up with a preacher who leads him to Jesus. Right before the song, it's quiet uptown. And it's not just any preacher. It's the pastor of the Dormacallan Church. I watched the clip, and yeah, that's the same guy. Was there a DeLorean in the background somewhere? <laughs> I don't know, man. They took some of the most beautiful lines and just clunkily inserted Jesus into it. As they are oft wont to do. As they are oft wont to do. Eliza is singing to Alexander about his unfaithfulness and begs him to invite Jesus into his heart. Oh, my God. One of the lines near the end of the musical is originally this. What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. I wrote some notes at the beginning of a song someone will sing for me. And this production makes it into, what is a legacy? It's knowing you repented and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets men free. You sent your sinless son of man on Calvary to die for me. You know, I think I could have done better with that. You probably could have. As a matter of fact, I'm certain I could have done better with that. Dude, the people who wrote that were probably very, very white. Yeah, there is. <laughs> and, and this production was also very, very white. Yeah, I mean... There are a lot of Hispanics in Texas, so, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't all white. But but it was white in spirit. <laughs> very, very white yeah, in spirit. very, very white evangelical in spirit. And then they end the performance with an anti-LGBTQ sermon. Ugh, cringy. Oh, that's fitting. There's every reason to do that. Of course there is. The performance was put on by a theater group called RGV Productions, who also work with the ministry of the Dor McAllen Church. I hate that name. I know, I do too. I I'm hate like, what that the name. heck are you... The what? Dor McAllen Church. I don't know. Reminds me of that meme that keeps going around of this hand-painted church sign Yeah. that says Murray's Baptist Church, <laughs> you know, two miles or 0.8 miles this way or whatever it was. Yeah, Murray's Baptist Church, the, the yeah. only Jewish Baptist church in the heartland. Yeah. <laughs> If you look at the webpage, Hamilton isn't the only work they've ripped off. They've also ripped off Toy Story, Despicable Me, and Beauty and the Beast. I guess those didn't get spread around as much as Hamilton. And two out of three are also Disney properties. Yeah. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? They're going to be deep shit. They are. Disney likes to sue people over this stuff. Yeah. And I read a little bit about the ripoff of Beauty and the Beast, and yes, there is totally a beast getting saved scene <laughs> there is a beast getting saved scene my goodness i can't i just can't it reminds me of do you remember when we used to sit there when i worked at the uh, the radio station <laughs> and we would sit there mocking the american family journal i think it was was it the american family association journal yeah i think so there was this one issue where they decided they were going to speculate on what tv sitcoms would look like if they were done by Christian production companies, and it was nothing but high-level cringe. Of course. I mean, we were evangelicals at the time. I was working at a fucking Christian radio station yeah. and sitting there and realizing just how ridiculous this was then. Yeah, and now we've got PureFlix. Oh, yeah. Where you can see some of those TV shows that are probably very similar. Don't get me started on PureFlix. We already did an episode where we took that apart. Yeah. 
I'm not sure these people were expecting the blowback they got. The lawyers for the Hamilton Production Company sent them a cease and desist letter after the Friday performance. (laughs) They were told not to put the live stream up on YouTube, which they had done, and to cancel the following night's performance. The church put online that they canceled it, but then sneakily sent emails to the congregation saying the performance was still on. So now we're up to uh, violating two of the commandments. Thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not lie. Yeah. After more blowback, they took down the first YouTube live stream and all of the other links to promotions and clips of their shows. Other people have gotten into this, not just Hemet, but he is really entertained by this whole thing. Yeah, I can imagine that he would be. Vastly entertained. Chris Peterson of the Onstage blog says this, Ministries receive a very limited exception from copyright law. During worship services, churches usually are permitted to play or perform any song or reading. Churches are typically permitted to play and perform copyrighted songs during worship services, and the law generally only extends to live, in-person performances. Because there was a sermon at the conclusion of the performance, it's possible the Dormacallan Church thought they were free and open to do as they did. They were wrong. This exemption does not cover dramatic secular works like operas or plays. It also doesn't matter if they didn't charge money for tickets either. I also don't see a live pit for musicians. If they used backing tracks, that's another issue as well. The fact that they live-streamed and posted the production on YouTube, which they have since taken down, is another issue as well. A license is often required to play, perform, or otherwise use any copyrighted material in a recording or broadcast. That not only will get them into hot water with Hamilton producers, but also Disney as well, since they paid $75 million for those rights. Oh, yeah. 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 I hope this gets Disney's attention. Oh, God. I really do. I do, too. I do, too. Interestingly enough, for their ad for their illegal production, RGV Productions used the same music cut from Disney Plus's trailer for Hamilton. Now, I just wanted to interject something here. You know, he's talking about how there's a certain degree of leeway yes. when it comes to things like using music in a worship service. Right. Well, guess what? Even if you want to use popular praise and worship music, you still need a CCLI license for right. that. I mean, I, I did music in almost every church that we were part of. Mm-hmm. And every church that we were part of had a CCLI license for yes. them to uh, use those songs. It's escaping me precisely what that acronym stands for at this point but it's the body that basically protects these uh, praise and worship groups and artists that put out this music and yes you absolutely do need to pay Mm -hmm. if you want to use these songs if you want to display the lyrics on the big screen in your church because every one of these churches has the big screen where they put the lyrics up so that everybody can sing along and you absolutely positively have to pay for that. Yes. Yeah, I don't know how much that license is, but my dance troupe uses something very similar because we use copyrighted music, and we need permission to use the copyrighted music in our dance production. Christian Copyright Licensing International, that's what it's called. Yeah. Thank you, Google. <laughs> yes, Google is great. 
But, you know, these people are in such trouble. Howard Sherman, a longtime theater administrator and producer, had this to say on his Facebook. August 7th, multiple reports indicate the second performance did occur. Dun, dun, dun. Now it's wholly for attorneys to address. But thanks to everyone who demonstrated that copyright violations will be discovered. People care about artists' rights. Indeed they do. And they should. Because, I mean, there's a lot of money and time that goes into these things. And with all due respect, I don't care if it's a full-length play or if it's a three-minute song. The artist deserves the royalties that are due whenever you download that. And especially if you're going to use it in public. And especially if you're going to charge money for it or even just pass the plate. Yeah. There's a level of responsibility here that these people, they just don't. They just don't think the rules apply to them. And it's infuriating. It It is. is so infuriating. No, I'm sorry. The rules apply to you regardless of what it is and regardless of what your intent is with it. Because I'm sorry, they made money off of this. And I know that they didn't charge admission per se. but But you got to know that they passed that fucking plate. Oh, yeah. They absolutely did. This was not a cheap production. No. So now, of course, they're going to at least try to recoup their cost for that. Yeah. And I'm I'm guessing that this had a pretty decent draw. Oh, I'm sure it did. So I'm also guessing that by the time all was said and done, they turned a profit on it. Yeah. Uh, don't spend that money right away. People. Yeah, don't spend that money right away. I feel like you're going to need it. Yeah. I mean, they stole costumes, sets... The music, the lyrics, and they changed them without permission. Yeah. All of these things are copyrighted. Yeah, it's all very problematic. Even the costumes, everything is copyrighted. Mm Mm-hmm. Crazy. I could talk about this more, but I'm a theater geek and would probably take over the podcast. That wouldn't be such a bad thing. (laughs) Have Shell just completely take over. It's like I'm not even sitting here. I'll just rant about musical theater copyright for like two hours i mean why not people need to know people yeah. need to understand that yeah. this this is not okay no it isn't in the meantime though check out hemet meta's articles about this performance over on only sky as well as the onstage blog i'm sure updates will be forthcoming yeah and i really do hope that we keep track of this one yeah. Because whatever transpires with this, you know, I, I want to know about it and I want to talk about it. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, just stop me from getting up from my seat here and just doing a jig of glee when they just come down like a hammer on these assholes. More things need to happen like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. These people need to be put in their place. Like I said a minute ago, they just don't think the rules apply to them. Well, Disney... Um, I would consider it a personal favor if you just taught them otherwise and taught them hard. Yeah. Because this is fucking ridiculous. It is. What have we got next? When I was a painfully awkward middle schooler, the public library was my sanctuary. I would go almost every Saturday when the library opened and I would stay until the library closed. It was the place I felt most welcome. But now, like everything else good in the world... Looks like conservative Christians are trying to ruin that, too. 
Hemet Mehta on Only Sky has put together just a few stories where libraries are losing staff, losing funding, and having their book choices scrutinized because of fundamentalist Christians. And not for the first time. We did not that story a few time. weeks ago about yeah. that crazy lady who wanted to take down the display yeah. of books about and written by LGBTQ people. This is something that's starting to gain more momentum, too. It really is. It really is. It's scary. Very. Voters in Jamestown Township, Michigan, chose to defund the library, depriving it of 84% of its 2023 budget. Unless that decision is reversed, the Patmos Library will be forced to shut down sometime next year. The reason the vote failed? Because conservative Christians in the community didn't like that some of the books featured same-sex couples. Get out and vote. Yes. Get out and vote. This is what happens when you don't. Mm-hmm. Library director Amber McLean resigned this spring, saying that she had been harassed online and accused of indoctrinating children. Interim director Matthew Lawrence resigned later. Indoctrinating children. Well, if that ain't the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah. Jesus. Amanda Ensing, one of the organizers of the Jamestown Conservatives Group, emerged from the library on Tuesday morning wearing an I Voted sticker. They are trying to groom our children to believe it's okay to have these sinful desires, Ensing said of library officials. It's not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. No, it's a fuck off and die issue. It's yeah. not even, you know, if, if you want to be able to think the way that you want to think, then you need to be prepared to let other people think the way they want to think. If you want to read your fluff Christian novels and books and all the shit, you know what? You are entitled. You are entitled to have those resources available to you as well. I don't like the idea that those things are in the library either, but I'm not going to tell them to take them away because I disagree with them. Yeah. You know, there is such a thing as free speech. And everyone, and I mean everyone, whether they believe in Sky Daddy or not, Mm. has the privilege of being able to go into a public library and publicly access materials that are their taste, that fall in step with the things that they believe, or maybe you don't even fucking care what the implications are of reading a certain book or having a certain book available. It's a public library, okay? You can't just walk in there and Jesusify it because you're too fucking afraid of other people's opinions that you just want to shut them up. Yeah. It, no, this, this, is, this is beyond ridiculous. It really is. And here's another story. The Vinton Public Library in Iowa was forced to close for over a week after its interim director, who's gay, resigned over the Christian community's homophobia. Colton Neely had been hired as the children's librarian in 2020 and did his job well. But between nasty comments said with an earshot and demands to hide or censor books about LGBTQ people, and objections to a summer reading challenge that encouraged patrons to read books by people of color and LGBTQ authors, it was clear that the people in this town wanted to make the librarians' lives miserable. Neely only became the director after his predecessor left town to take over a library in a more welcoming community. Before long, he decided he had to go too. You could tell half the crowd was just like, Ugh, you're disgusting, he said of the June 8th meeting. That was the board meeting where I was just like, I've had it. 
he penned a resignation letter to the library board on June 27th, writing that despite his hard-earned qualifications, he felt reduced to just the gay man at the library. <laughs> and you know what? Do some Googling on what those hard-earned qualifications entail. It is hard. You need a master's degree for this. Absolutely. And you're also in heavy competition yeah. with a lot of other people who want these jobs. Yeah. So, I mean, you're you're really rolling the dice just going into this field in the first place. Yeah. You are really rolling the dice on getting a job when you're done. And it's an insane amount of work. And you spend an insane amount of money, time, and effort to get there only to be looked down on by these Christian assholes yeah. who don't like you because of who you choose to love. Yeah. It's and crazy. it's just, it's utterly ridiculous. He continued, it hurts and I am disappointed. I don't even know what to say about these things. It's happening in more than just these two places. Every so often I'll read my Twitter feed and there will be a librarian having a thread about how conservative Christians are threatening to defund the library. I guess to a bunch of people who only believe one book matters, the other books clearly don't. Have I mentioned that it's like tantamount important to get out and vote? These people will have their way if the rest of us remain silent. Yeah. They will have their way. Don't let them. Just mm. don't fucking let them. We're the bigger group out there. There's more of us than yes. there are of them. Okay, yeah. there's more people out there who have enough tolerance to just let these things happen. And then, you know what? Just don't check out the books that they don't want to read. Mm -hmm. That's a much bigger group, but it's the smaller group that votes. Yeah. And that needs to change. Definitely. So and we got one more here. <laughs> and it always gives me great joy to see Ken Ham have his ass handed to him. Yeah, and uh, And this is another example. No insurance money for you, Ken Ham. No. Sorry, but no. Okay, I won't steal any more of your thunder. And this story is just funny. The creationists at Answers in Genesis and Crosswater Canyon, the parent companies for the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter, respectively, have filed a lawsuit against their insurance providers for not covering their losses for three months when they were forced to close due to COVID. They claim they are legally owed that money despite no physical damage to the properties because their insurance policies covered it. But in short, the insurers say that the infectious disease provision doesn't apply because there's no evidence the place is shut down due to a COVID outbreak among staffers, whether or not they ever caught it. More importantly, the interruption by civil authority provision doesn't apply because the executive orders didn't result in the complete interruption of operations, which denied them access to the premises. This is a quote from the insurance company's policy. If ministries are able to continue operations even partially, for example, by offering alternative access via video streaming or conducting e-commerce, they have not incurred a complete interruption of their operations. That means churches that live-streamed their sermons and took donations online when they couldn't hold in-person services or pass around a collection hat were also ineligible for recoveries. In the case of these creationists, the insurers pointed out that they were still doing business despite the shutdowns. Take that and that and, and that. that. 
The court this case is being seen in has not been open to reimbursing businesses for COVID-19 claims. So we'll see what happens. Well, hopefully they like them about as much as we do. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Of course, these particular creationists are not precisely known for winning cases. In 2019, Ark Encounter hilariously sued its insurance providers for not covering rain damage. Savor the irony. Both sides settled out of court in late 2020. Details of that settlement remain under wraps. It's also worth noting the creationists didn't exactly suffer during the pandemic. The ARC's parent company, Crosswater Canyon, received between $1 million and $2 million from the Paycheck Protection Program. And Ham also raised over a $1 million in a separate fundraiser to offset COVID-related losses. If they were struggling, it wasn't from a lack of funding. In June of 2020, when the Creation Museum was on the verge of reopening, Ham bragged about its multi-million dollar upgrade. Yeah, maybe you should keep your mouth shut about shit like that if you're going to go begging for more money from your insurance company. Yeah, it really doesn't sound like they're hurting at all. No, it really doesn't. And it's just another example of how these people will go for the money grab any time they possibly can. Oh, yeah. And it's nice to see them being told no once in a while. Yeah. And on that happy note, our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash Unbound Podcast Network. If you can help us out with your dollars, fantastic. It starts at the $5 level. And for that, you get the golden opportunity to help more people get and stay Unbound. And that is what we're here to do. We're here to keep this message rolling out to as many people as we can and keep improving as we go. And you can help us with that. If you don't have the money to pay for free content, guess what? We get that too. So help us out with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, and all the things that help podcasts continue to grow. And first and foremost, tell people about us. Tell people that we're out here. Put the content in front of them in any context where it's relevant. Don't hit people over the head with it, but at the same time, don't be shy either because there's a lot of crosstalk going on out there and people need to understand that what these people have to tell them is not the only opinion out there. Share the counterpoint. Let people know that there are other opinions and other ways of thinking about these things. And the easiest way to do that is to just engage in conversation and drop a link. It really is that simple. It's a good thing that you can do. It's an easy thing that you can do. And I am seeing firsthand that it's effective. So if you've got the dollars to spare, patreon.com slash unbound podcast network is where you're going to go to make your donation. But if you're broke, can't handle five bucks a month, you know what? There's a lot of that going on right now. Just help us out in these other ways. And you could be instrumental in someone getting and staying unbound. And I cannot think of any better gift that you can give to someone than the gift of free thought and the gift of the knowledge that they don't need this religion in their lives. So with that, uh, let's talk about what's happening next week. Now, I know that I got behind this mic last week and said we were going to be doing something different. But then it also occurred to me, number one, this is the week that we were supposed to be doing this episode, and I had already promoted it. And uh, the other half of that equation is that my emotions were running very high over a couple of situations, especially one that touched my business, directly touched my business. And I was still kind of riding on a little bit of an emotional tizzy from that. And as I sat down to research the topic that I wanted to do for tonight, 
it became apparent to me that, well, two things became apparent to me. Number one, I was making it just a little bit too personal. And my goal here is not to only purge the frustrations. It's not just about personal catharsis. It has to be relevant to the people listening. And it has to be something that's valuable to the person listening. I didn't want it to be all about me. So as the emotions started to settle, and as I started going out there trying to do some research to try and make this story that's running through my head a little bit more coherent, it became apparent to me that there's a single running thread in both of these situations that I thought would make a much more clear and concise episode. So next week, working title for the episode is That Voice Again, A Conversation About Bereavement Hallucinations. And I hope that that's enough of a tease to get you to come back next week, because I think we're going to have some really good content to share with you next week and some really, really good insights on the dangers of things like believing that people who have passed are still part of your life. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there. And honestly, I was surprised going through my research for that, how many sources actually paint this as something that's credible. Well, you know what? I try not to do my research on the basis of confirmation bias. So we're going to look at both sides from the standpoint of psychology and try to hash out what precisely is going on in those moments and in those instances, and also provide a little bit of a cautionary tale about the dangers of letting these kinds of thoughts linger. So uh, that's going to be next week. And I'm, I feel much, much better about this next episode than I did last week. We need to do this the same way that we do everything else around here. And it has to be presented well. And it can't be all about the host. It has to be about the people listening to the content and delivering value on that level. So I think that I've reached that point of balance with this, where I can talk about this a little bit more objectively, but also put the personal stuff in there. And I think people will appreciate it more than what was running through my head last week. So come back next week for that one. The week after, well, fuck me, it's a road test week again. And the, the momentum of this is incredible. It's like, the, it's, it's a never-ending cycle of before we finish one, we're already planning the next one. Yep. And it's uh, it's it's crazy just how quickly things move in this business, but it's well worth it. And I know that everybody who's listening understands and would be very encouraging if they were sitting here to, uh, to just cheer me on with my efforts with this too. So without uh, going into too much more of a rambling rant on that, let's go ahead and pop some corn, crack open a jump soda, and get into this discussion of the movie Joe versus the Volcano. take my own advice and pop open a jump to start this out there we go there we go that's that's the stuff right there ah a little mukbang for your unbound episode but uh so it's mandarin orange seltzer work with me a little bit on this folks so the movie starts with the sound of an orchestra tuning up which i think is kind of appropriate for this yeah the the whole anticipation thing that goes along with it The screen goes to black, and it starts with the fairy tale opening. Once upon a time, there was a guy named Joe who had a very lousy job. And oh my God, does he have a lousy job. (laughs) Everything that can go wrong with this guy's day, from minute one, does. I mean, this, this is a 
dismal opening for a comedy. Very, very dismal. Dark and dismal and gloomy and any other negative adjective that you want to tag onto it. There's a lot of surreal imagery that goes into just the first couple of minutes of this movie. And all of it has just one message. And that message is that corporate America sucks. I can vouch. Yeah. I can vouch. It's a very caricaturish way of presenting it. But I can totally vouch. And let me tell you, some of the stuff that you see at the beginning of this movie is not that far off. No. No, it really isn't. So Joe arrives at work and he parks his car right next to a puddle and steps out into the puddle. This is going to set the tone for his day. Yeah. And it probably sets the tone for pretty much every one of his days. And it's not the only puddle he's going to uh, step in before he actually gets to this dismal office where he works. Mm. And at one point you see him step in a puddle and you see just how bad a shape his shoes are in. These things are literally falling apart because he doesn't make enough money to be able to afford a better pair of shoes. So he's literally going to wear these until they fall right off his feet. And you see this huge crowd of clearly one thousand percent unmotivated people walking as slowly as they possibly can into their workplace (laughs) and they just they they look like just a bunch of drones yeah they're trying hard not to think about the day that they're going to have yeah all the people are like the epitome of done oh yeah everybody's done this is the this is the uh definition of the walking dead yeah these people are all dead inside and that is the message that they're trying to convey here No one looks happy. No one is even talking to each other. It's like they're just all off in their own little world, and they are bound and determined to get inside, do their job, and get the fuck out. That is their entire motivation. And as they're walking past, they also pan past a bunch of signs. American Panoscope, home of the rectal probe. I mean, just those are two words that I feel like should never be used (laughs) together in that order. And then you see a sign that says, a new generation of surgical tools, 50 years of petroleum jelly. Ooh. Five very slippery decades. (laughs) And then there's the whole revolving door imagery. You know, that's corporate America right there. It's a big revolving door. But I also like the metaphor that this creates where Joe walks through, and I don't know if you've seen them before, those doors that are basically just bars yeah. And they swing. You you walk through, and it's kind of like going through a vertical turnstile. Yeah. Okay? So uh, he's walking through the door, and he just sort of pauses until the door literally kicks him through. Yeah. It's like he has to have his ass literally kicked into his workplace. Mm. And it just sort of shoves him headlong into his workday. And then there's what I call the Andy Dufresne, well, the anti-Andy Dufresne moment in this, where you we see Joe looking up to the sky with his arms outstretched in a messianic pose. And it basically looks like he's looking to the sky saying, why, God, why? Yeah. Why the fuck am I back here again? So when Andy does it in the Shawshank Redemption, it's all about freedom. When Joe does it, it's about lament. Yeah. I think he had just taken the soul off of his shoe because of like some jagged edge in the path and like he steps on it and steps over it and it just tears off the soul. It was already torn. Out. That's yeah. the thing. It, it was, was already, already torn, torn up. but it was now almost like completely off his shoe. Those shoes are pretty much done at that yeah, point. Yeah, they are. 
they show you that to exacerbate the point of how bad things are. Yeah. Things are bad for mm. Joe at the beginning of this movie. He is not a happy camper and he's not being given a whole hell of a lot of reasons to be. So this is where we pick up his story. The way to the main plant is a long, crooked path that a shot later we learn to be in the same shape as the company logo. Yeah. And this thing is ominous. It looks like a foreboding, all-seeing eye with a lightning bolt rending the whole thing in two. Yeah. That's, that's the imagery that I got in my head seeing this for the first time. And then the camera just focuses on this daisy that's growing out of a crack in the pavement. And at first, it looks like people are at least trying to walk around it. And then, you know, one of these people just sort of walks up on it and and crushes it right into the pavement. And then we get to see them actually enter the plant. And the only thing I can think of that's like this, this huge steel door just opens up. And the light just sort of, it floods into this really, really dark place. Yeah. And I'm sorry, it looked like a hangar on the Death Star. <laughs> it really did. It's like, is that where these people work? No, no such luck. It's nowhere near that exciting. OSHA violations as far as the eye can see. Oh, totally. Oh, my God. This place is unbelievable. So then we pan by another one of these wonderful signs that says 712,765 satisfied customers. This is in reference to the anal probe what was the rectal probe not rectal anal probe. probe anal probes is a different thing it's the count of the rectal probes that they've sold satisfied customers well that's a lot of happy asses isn't it mm. and then just a minute later they change the leaderboard so now it's 712,776 they sold another one before the day even started isn't that awesome so now we get to see Joe arrive at his little corner of this corporate paradise. Ooh. And this place is dank and dismal. It looks like the beginning of the first Resident Evil movie. <laughs> it's just that dank it's... and just that dismal. And I was waiting for the zombies to show up. Yeah. I think it would have made it a better movie, but no, no such luck. Well, actually, you know, now that I think about it... Um, <laughs> It, was there the any employees. was there anything but yeah. zombies in this place? No. I mean, most of the employees had had the look and feel anyway. Yeah. But this is where we meet Joe's boss, this slime ball named Mr. Watsuri. Yeah. Oh, this is a pleasant individual. Oh. This seems like it is his entire job is just sitting on the phone and arguing with people. Or maybe it's the same person. Maybe he spends like eight hours a day just returning volley with this one person and you only ever hear one side of the conversation and it's very repetitive i know he can get the job but can he do the job i know he can get the job but can he do the job i'm not arguing that with you i'm not arguing that with you i'm not arguing that with you oh my god it's just shut the fuck up you know i can't even begin to imagine what it must be like just sitting at a desk a few feet away from this guy and this being all that you ever hear. It's like in uh, office space. Corporate accounts payable. Nina speaking. Just a moment. Over and over and over and over again. Yeah. It's like it's enough to drive anyone bad shit. And I think that was the point. Again, very characterish, but not terribly far off. Yeah. This office is basically a dungeon. And half the ballasts and the light need replacing. So all the lights are flickering and oh, yeah. buzzing. And it, again... 
Eight hours a day of that shit? Yeah. You've got to be kidding me. And the green tint. Everything is tinted green. That's why I said Resident Evil. It looks pretty much the same. And no one looks good no. in that light. No, they all look sick. They yes. they all look like they have the flu but came to work anyway. Yeah. I love how the non-dairy creamer doesn't even mix in with the vile coffee that they serve. I mean, oh. I'm, I I was flat out surprised that they actually had coffee in this yeah. office that they didn't have to pay for. And on Mr. Wachori's desk, you have this thing. I don't know if it's a plaque or if it's just the thing itself. But you look at it, it's these two dangling orbs and then a little plaque that says artificial testicle prototype. Oh, the wonderful products that these people deal with. (laughs) Everyone in this office is just in their own little world, drowning out everyone and everything around them. And Joe has his various coping mechanisms, one of them being this really hideous lamp (laughs) that's sitting on his desk. And it looks like it came from a 70s porn set. It really is just that garish. And I guess it's supposed to be a tropical theme, maybe a little bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen later, where he's just dreaming of a tropical paradise and watching this thing revolve. It, It revolves like a carousel. Yeah. That was a 1970s thing. It plays music, mm-hmm. and it just makes the scene look like it's moving. Yeah. If you watch all the credits, you'll see the scene that's on the lamp. Because right. Because they played it under the credits. Yes. Yeah. And it's, uh, again, I think, I think it's a little bit of a foreshadowing, but I don't think at that moment in time he ever thought that he was going to see anything that beautiful in all of his life. Yeah. So this was his escape. He could look at the lamp... And for a minute at a time, things were just a little bit better. But, you know, Mr. Waturi is going to take care of that in a couple of minutes anyway. Mm-hmm. So now comes the whole catalog controversy. You know, I can kind of relate to this on a couple of levels because I have had managers have interactions with me that were every bit as ridiculous as this. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, isn't this corporate America just in a nutshell here? The whole conversation revolves around Mr. Wachori wanting to know what is going on with this catalog order that has taken weeks to complete. And, you know, Joe has reminded him the way that he's been asked to remind him. I reminded you three weeks ago and then two weeks ago. And Wachori's response to that is, did you remind me last week? No, not good enough, Joe. Not even close to good enough, Joe. And it's like, it's hard enough that he has my real first name. Because that, it really does needle yeah. at, uh, at some of the things that I've been through out there in the corporate world. And the shaming, the shaming that this guy gets. Yeah. And the worst of it is that he actually did his job. It's like, how many times do you have to remind somebody to do this thing right. before they actually do it? But of course, this guy's management and this other guy is just a grunt. So of course, the grunt's going to get thrown under the bus. Of course. Right or wrong, that's just what happens. And then the uh, the insults start to fly. You know, I want to make you an assistant manager, but you're not flexible. You're inflexible. And all of this stuff, just pointing out every perceived defect Ugh. that this guy has. And it's at this point that Joe brings up that he has a doctor's appointment that day. And apparently this is something that happens a lot. Because uh, Waturi just goes off about the doctor's appointment. It's like, what are you going in for this time? And Joe just says... I don't feel good. And the way that they filmed this shot, it stuck with me from the very first time I saw this movie. Yeah. 
the look on Watori's face when he looks at Joe and says, nobody feels good. After childhood, it's a fact of life. I don't feel good. It doesn't keep me from getting my job done or whatever, whatever it is that he says there. The beginning of this movie is a visualization of quiet desperation. And that is this guy's life. It's nothing but an exercise in quiet desperation. And that is how we're supposed to see it. So just to add insult to injury, Watori tells Joe to get rid of the lamp. Because why should he have anything satisfying or anything escapist that he can turn to in this dystopian job situation that he's in? So he's told to get rid of the lamp. And he says, I will. And Watori's like, no, no, now, now, get rid of the lamp. So the lamp goes on the floor, it gets turned off, and that's the end of that. And then as he's walking away, he's like, I want those catalogs. And Joe says, then please order them. And he's like, watch it, Joe. Watch it. It's like, uh, how many fucking times do you have to be reminded? Just order the fucking catalogs and leave them alone. You know? And then uh, Dee Dee, who is the first iteration of Meg Ryan that we're going to see in this movie. (laughs) There are three. uh, She just sort of leans in and says, why do you let Watori talk to you like that? What's the matter with you? So, I mean, he's getting shamed on all sides here. There's, it's like the walls are closing in on this guy. And even though they all detest their boss, they still have room to just add insult to injury here and make him feel worse. At that point, I would be counting the minutes until I had to leave for that doctor's appointment, which he finally does. And the doctor's office is equally depressing. It's equally dark. It's just equally dismal. It just, there's no... There's no atmosphere to it at all. Yeah. Even, even that sanitized medical atmosphere that I hate so much, yeah. that's not even there. It's just this void yeah. of anything positive. It's weird because the whole room is white. The whole room is white. The lights are white, but it still looks dark. Oh, yeah. But he goes to the doctor. And then we learn that Joe was a firefighter before he found himself in the seventh circle of corporate hell. He basically had to quit the job because he started, quote, not feeling good all the time. And we don't get any other context to this. I don't know if he suffered any kind of trauma or if he just started getting a less optimistic outlook on life early on. You know, he, he seems like he never really found fulfillment in anything that he was doing. And it wound up putting him in a position where he couldn't do that job anymore. Now Rod Steiger, or Dr. Elliston, as we know him in this movie, is about to solve a mystery for Joe. All of a sudden, he has the answer to what's wrong with Joe. And he diagnoses him with something called a brain cloud. Yeah. And there's no other conversation about this. It's never explained precisely what this thing is, how it occurs, how common it is, or anything like that. He's just told that he has a brain cloud and that he's got six months to live. He's also told that other than that, he's just a total hypochondriac. There was never anything else wrong with him. And it's just that his insistence on going to the doctor all the time because he didn't feel good, that they actually caught this, that he probably would have died without ever knowing that this was wrong with him. But because he was so persistent, they were able to find it. Yeah. So doctor gives him six months to live, and Joe clarifies I'm not sick. And Joe's answer to the whole hypochondriac thing is, so I'm not sick except for this terminal disease. (laughs) I mean, it it just solidifies in his mind that he's been right all along, that this has been a thing all along. But it's just progressed 
to the point where he just doesn't have a whole lot of time left. That's the next thing that the doctor brings up. Joe is like, well, what do I do now? And the doctor says, well, if you have some savings, maybe you should take a trip. And Joe's like, I don't have any savings. I got a few hundred dollars in the bank. I've spent all my money on doctors for crying out loud. So the only sage advice that the doctor has for him at this point is that you do have some time left, so live it well. And Joe decides to immediately take this advice because how bad can things get in six months, okay? Mm. He goes back to work and immediately starts laying into Watori. Well, not immediately. He's he's acting kind of strange <laughs> when he gets back. He takes the, the arm off that mannequin and starts patting Watori on the head with it. <laughs> uh, he's uh, He goes over and it's not the main drain. It's the main something yeah. with the water line or whatever. Yeah. And, not open. Yeah, and it's got this sign on it that says not to open it. So he goes over and just starts um, unscrewing the thing. And he looks at it. It's like, yeah, nothing. That's pretty much what I expected. I always wondered what would happen if I did that. And it was very, very anticlimactic. There are weird behaviors. Before he launches into his tirade, there are some definite weird behaviors. And it's very off-putting to everybody in the room. You know, everybody's wondering what the fuck he's going to do next. And what happens next is he lays into Mr. Warturi and makes the point that in the last four and a half years, he may have done maybe five or six months of actual work. So he tells Warturi that he's quitting and Warturi tells him, I promise you, you'll be easy to replace. And didn't they hit us with this one in Amway? Oh, yeah. Right. About the whole finger in the bucket thing. Uh-huh. It's like, that's what it's going to be like when you leave your workplace. They literally sat there and told us that our contribution to our workplace was meaningless because as soon as we left, the hole would be filled immediately. And I ran with that mentality for a long time. And that's pretty much what he's saying here. You'll be easy to replace. And at that point, Joe snaps Mm -hmm. and he goes into this tirade with Mr. Waturi. He says, you look terrible, Mr. Waturi. You look like a bag of shit stuffed in a cheap suit. And he's like, not that anyone would look good under these zombie lights. Oh, it's all coming out now. And this is another one of those lines that has always stuck with me. He's like, I can feel them sucking the juice out of my eyeball. Suck, 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 suck. <laughs> Ugh. Oh, God. It's just, it's just, it's cringy. It's, it's giving me the douche chills just remembering it. And this was the part that really, really hit me. He says, 300 bucks a week. That's the news. For 300 bucks a week, I've lived in this sink, this used rubber. And why, I ask myself, why have I put up with you? I can't imagine, but I know. Fear. Yellow freaking fear. I've been too chicken shit afraid to live my life, so I sold it to you for 300 freaking bucks a week. And you know what? I feel that. Yeah. I so feel that. So as he is rage quitting, he is making steps for the door, but then he kind of doubles back. And before he leaves, he asks Dee Dee, this is Meg Ryan number one, asks her out on a date and she says yes. And as he's leaving this hell that he's called a workplace for the last few years, he takes the time to straighten out that daisy. Yeah. And I just thought that that was a little bit of an interesting foreshadowing Mm -hmm. of how his perspective on things was about to change or was actually changing as all of this is unfolding. It took him learning that he was going to die to figure out that it was time to live a little. Yeah. And it kind of sucks, but that's true for a lot of people. So Joe and Dee Dee go out on their date and uh, things seem to be going well. 
he's much more animated. He's got a lot more enthusiasm and she sees it and tells him that he's really intense, but she's like really enthralled. She's never seen him like this. Mm -hmm. And she likes this version of Joe. She really (laughs) likes this version of Joe. And Joe asks her, just out of the clear blue, he asks her, have you ever been scared? And she's like, at the moment, you're scaring me a little. But she's saying it with kind of a chuckle. And she doesn't seem put off by the question. And she doesn't seem put off by the situation at all. But for all intents and purposes, she's having a pretty good time. So Joe says that he feels great, which is a complete departure from his normal state of mind here. And then uh, Dee Dee looks at him and says, I wish I was where you are, Joe. And he's like, yeah, no, you don't. (laughs) And, you know, really, you don't. But then he bribes the mariachi band at the restaurant to play a song that by his own admission, he actually admits this out loud. It's designed to make things get a step further with Dee Dee. So after dinner, they have this late night stroll where they're just kind of looking out at the New York skyline. And then it's back to his place. And I'm thinking, come on, Joe, don't fuck this up. Oh, never mind. In the heat of the moment, he pauses and tells her that he is going to die. And of course, she freaks. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm just thinking, poor Joe, it was shaping up to be such a good night. But, you know, shit happens. Hmm. Especially when you're honest. Sometimes honesty can backfire on you. Yeah. It's always the best policy, but it can backfire on you. So all of a sudden, it's next morning, and there is someone knocking at the door. Joe puts down his, he's he's sitting there strumming his ukulele. He puts it down and answers the door. And this crazy old man <laughs> is standing outside his door and wants to come in and talk. And we find out that this is Samuel Granamore, a.k.a. Lloyd Bridges. <laughs> one of my favorite comic actors from like the uh, 70s, 80s. And he's playing this rich superconductor tycoon. And he knows everything about Joe. He recounts a story of Joe saving kids from a burning building, and he knows that Joe quit his job. He knows that Joe has a brain cloud. Shit that he shouldn't know, but he knows. So uh, Granamore opens the conversation asking Joe, what do you know about superconductors? Because he owns a company that, quote, dominates the world market in them. And then here's the pitch. This guy comes right out with it. He wants Joe to jump into a volcano. And he says there's an island in the South Pacific called Waponi Wu. The name means the little island with the big volcano. The Waponis are a cheerful people who live a simple existence fishing in the lagoon and picking fruit. They have one fear. That's a big volcano, and they call it the Big Wu. They believe an angry fire god in the volcano will sink the island unless once every hundred years he is appeased. It's been 99 years, 11 months, and 11 days since the fire god got his propers, and the Waponis are scared. Can I pause here and just reflect on the name the Big Woo for a moment? <laughs> I mean, that's what this is, isn't it? Nothing but a big roiling pit of woo, you know? So Joe asks him how the god is appeased, and Granamore says that of his own free will, a man's got to jump into the volcano. Now, as you might imagine, none of the Waponis are anxious to volunteer for the honor of jumping into the Big Woo. And the problem is that whoever does it has got to do it of his own free will. So what do you do? And Joe's like, what do you do? And Granamore says, you do some trading. Now, here's the whole crux of it right here. Yes. There's a mineral on that island, Mr. Banks, that's called Boobaroo. Boobaroo. Okay. 
That makes about as much sense as anything else in this movie. <laughs> I don't know anywhere else on the planet where you can find more than a gram of this stuff. And believe me, I've looked. Because without Boobaroo, I can't make my superconductors. I've tried to get the mineral rights from the Waponis, but I don't seem to have anything they want. But they do want a hero, Mr. Banks, and they'll give me those mineral rights if I find them one. So Joe just sort of looks at him and is like, why would I jump into a volcano? And Grainamore says, from your exploits in the fire department, I think you've got the courage. From your doctor, you know you're on your way out anyway. You haven't got any money, I checked. Do you want to wait it out here in this apartment? That sounds kind of grim to me. It's not how I'd want to go, I'll tell you that. And at that point, he produces this stack of credit cards and lays them out on the table, and they all have Joe's name on them. <laughs> and he says, these are yours if you take the job. I mean, we're talking high-end credit cards, absolute sky's the limit sort of thing. It'd be 20 days from today before you'd actually have to jump into the big woo. You could shop today, get yourself some clothes, you know, for a little adventure. Then tomorrow, it's a plane to L.A., first class, naturally. And he tells them to stay in the best hotel. Then the next day, you board a yacht because he doesn't want to fly him out there. He doesn't even want to charter a puddle jumper because his competitors sometimes watch the airports. It's like, well, what difference would that make? Is one of the CEOs from one of your competing companies going to beat him to the volcano? I mean, I don't know. But he's going to take a yacht right into the South Pacific. And at that point, the Waponis are going to come out to meet him. And Grainamore calls it a total red carpet situation because he's going to be their national hero. It's like, so you get to the island and you have a day or so of fun in the sun and they treat you like royalty and then you jump into the volcano. Yep. And then he, he really plays it up. He's like, die like a man. That's what I say. And Joe just stands there and contemplates it for a minute. And with all the nonchalance that he can muster, just looks at it and says, Okay, I'll do it. So they have a deal. And now Joe is going on this totally self-indulgent lap of luxury binge. He rents a limo with a chauffeur, makes the point of asking them, this is how not Joe this whole thing is. He literally asks them if the driver comes with it. <laughs> and of course, the driver does come with it. And the chauffeur actually has loads of advice that he almost gives under duress. But once he gets going, he can't stop. And I'm, I'm thinking, this guy's really intense. He's asking Joe a lot of questions that Joe just doesn't have the answers to. And it's it's simple stuff, like, where do you want to go? And Joe is like, I want to go shopping. Well, for what? I don't know. And the chauffeur, his name is Marshall, he pulls over the car and says, it's not up to me to tell you who you are. So I feel like this guy has kind of had it with the nouveau riche set. I feel like he's been in this position before. Mm. And it did seem a little abrupt to me, but he was making a point. Joe's life, even now, is kind of lacking in direction. He's stopped thinking too hard about his life because he knows it's going to end soon. So Marshall helps him figure some shit out, and things become a little bit more decisive. So Joe goes and buys some clothes. And a fuck ton of other shit, too. He's like Arthur. There's that yeah. one scene in that movie where he sees the sweater that he likes, so he doesn't buy one. He decides he's going to buy 12. Well, Joe finds these really, really nice boxers. And they feel good, and he likes them a lot, so he buys nine pairs. Then he gets himself a nice haircut, and believe oh, me, he needed God. he needed a fucking haircut. Hockey hair. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a good description. It was definite <laughs> hockey hair. 
And then he gets this really, really nice haircut and even buys Marshall and Armani Tux. He buys a shaving kit, a shortwave radio, an office practice putting green. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's all kinds of shit that he just frivolously spends money on because he's got it and he can. And of course, he needs luggage. So he goes to this high end store, tells the sales guy what he wants, and the sales guy opens up these doors like he's about to enter the Holy of Holies. And he rolls out this really, really, really nice steamer trunk. It's like, I don't think that first class on the Titanic had stuff this nice. No. It was a really, really nice trunk. And he, he sells it well to Joe. Yeah. So well, in fact, that Joe decides he's going to buy four. And the guy says something like, may you live to be a thousand, thousand years old. It's like, I can imagine the commission <laughs> that this guy got. Oh. Off of not just one of these, but four in oh, a day. Geez. Yeah, That's got to be like something that he absolutely didn't think was going to happen when he got out of bed that morning. Mm. So he gets all this stuff. And then it's off to his hotel. Marshall has recommended the Pierre Hotel. And so he checks in there. And the last conversation that he has with Marshall, Marshall says to him, you know, there are certain times in your life when I guess you're not supposed to have anybody. You know, there are certain doors that you have to go through alone. Bookmark that little bit of foreshadowing there. And after a cozy night's rest, it's off to L.A. where we meet Meg Ryan number two. This is Graynamore's daughter, Angelica. She's a self-proclaimed flibbertigibbet, and she really is. She's been sent to meet Joe at the airport, and she's holding up a sign with his name on it that looks like it was made by a kindergarten art class, okay? So they're driving off to wherever it is they're going. I assume they're on their way to dinner at this point, and I love how she refers to L.A. She says it's a great town. It stinks, but it's a great town. I feel like there are a lot of people that feel that way about L.A., (laughs) So now we're going to watch Joe have dinner with Meg Ryan number two. And so this is my dinner with Meg Ryan part two for this movie. And it's just a slightly different atmosphere this time. And this version of her is just this side of scene. And she asks Joe questions. He answers her. And her response is, oh, I have no response to that. And she says it more than once. Then she tells him that she's a painter and a poet And that the painting that's up on the wall in this restaurant is one of her paintings. It's just, it's so weird. It's very weird. It's a weird-ass painting. And then we find out later that the only reason why they've got her painting up in the restaurant is because her father owns the restaurant. Otherwise, you know, they, they, they probably wouldn't be dealing with her crazy anywhere near as well as they are. So after dinner, she drives him out to this place that in any, like, 60s teen movie would be considered make out point. Yeah. Okay. And Angelica starts waxing poetic. And by that, I mean she recites the same two-line poem to him twice. She recites the poem, asks him, would you like to hear it again, and recites it again. Mm-hmm. It's a very Angelica sort of thing to do. And Angelica is very dissatisfied with life. And you can tell in no small part by what she says. They're, they're up here and they're looking out at the L.A. skyline. This is something that I actually do hope to see before yeah. I check out because it is very impressive. I'd like to see it firsthand. But they're sitting there with this magnificent view and she just blurts out, did you ever think about killing yourself? And Joe is appalled 
by the question, which is ironic in the current climate of things. Yeah. And Joe says, listen to me. If you have a choice between killing yourself and doing something you're scared of, why not take the leap and do the thing that you're scared of doing? To which Angelica responds, you mean stop taking my father's money and leave L.A.? And Joe's like, you see, you know what you're afraid of doing. Why don't you do it and see what happens? Bookmark that, too, because it's Mm going to come back. Angelica, to say the least, is a little unstable. She's very angry and defensive. And Joe makes the point, there's only so much time. And he should know. At that point, she's driving him back to where he's staying and basically throws herself at him and says, you know, I could come up. And Joe, I don't know. She's attractive. But if it was me in that situation, she has done absolutely nothing to turn me on. You know what I mean? The prospect of spending the night with this woman is not something that I would consider that I'd hit the jackpot over, okay? Yeah. So Joe doesn't take the bait. He just agrees to meet her for breakfast on their way to the boat in the morning. And instead of having meaningless sex with somebody who's just there and available, he does what I would be doing in the situation that he was in. He's close to the water. So he goes down by the shore at night to contemplate life. And this was a regular thing. Yeah. for me to do when when we were going up to Maine every summer mm-hmm. it was a regular thing that I would do I would always be down there by the shore at night I think it's one of the best times to be there you just there, there's nothing to do but listen to the surf and look at the stars and especially in that area where there's very little light pollution I'll tell you what you see a lot more stars than you see around here oh yeah oh yeah so uh, that's what Joe is doing at this point and we're just we're, we're not really he's he's not saying anything there's there's no eloquent soliloquy here He's just contemplating because he knows the end is coming and he's starting to understand the necessity of taking certain things in. So jump to the next morning. Breakfast is an absolutely raucous affair. And that is to say (laughs) that Angelica is making things as uncomfortable as she possibly can, because that's an Angelica thing to do. And Joe is literally dressed like Panama fucking Jack. (laughs) He looks ridiculous. Yes. But he was told to shop for an adventure. So this was how he interpreted adventure. He's Panama Jack. And now it's time to meet Patricia, a.k.a. Meg Ryan number three. Patricia's got an abundance of attitude, but she's also a lot more savory and easier to, uh, to deal with than Angelica. She comes across as really boorish and snotty, but there's a likability about her. There's a confidence about her that kind of makes up for that. And she's just trying to, I guess, establish the pecking order a little bit here because she's the captain of this yacht and she wants everyone around her to know that she's in charge. She, for whatever reason, starts calling Joe Felix and she does it more than (laughs) once. And it starts to irritate him a little bit. And he's like, my name is Joseph or Joe. And she's like, okay, fine, Joe. And he asks her, why did you call me Felix? And she responds, and this is as good a reason as any, because I do what I want. Mm. So, you know, that's, uh, again, establishing the pecking order a little bit and giving us an idea of who this character is. And there's going to be a lot of that because I do what I want kind of attitude and vibe toward the end, too. But Joe is very adamant about her using his real name, and she relents. He says goodbye to Angelica and gives her a little peck on the cheek, and then they're off. And, you know, let me tell you, I love this boat. I I love this boat. It's basically a windjammer, 
And I love wind jammers. We've done a couple of wind jammer cruises and yeah. they're they're hella fun. And this one's going to go on for a while. And it's a nice boat. It's a very nice boat. And it's called the Tweedledee. And we and we find out that there is a um, there's a twin, yeah. both owned by her father, mm-hmm. and of course the twin is Tweedledum. Once they set sail, it's a very idyllic kind of scene, right down to the music that they choose. We see a gorgeous sunset, and they're having this really really nice dinner, and now they're going to talk about the Waponi. This is what Patricia knows about them. Eight hundred years ago, a Roman galley with a crew of Jews and Druids. Jews and Druids. How did these people get together? Got caught in a huge storm off of Carthage. This just keeps getting weirder and weirder. That one sentence is just really, really fucking weird. They were swept a thousand miles off course and ended up on the wrong side of the Horn of Africa. Thinking they were returning to Rome, they sailed deep into the South Pacific and finally ended by colonizing a lightly populated Polynesian island which they named Waponi Wu. Thus was born the Waponi culture, a mix of, wait for it, Polynesian, Celtic, Hebrew, and Latin influences. What a mishmash that is. <laughs> and it proves to be. The Waponis are known throughout Polynesia as having a peculiar love of orange soda and no sense of direction. Hmm. That's what they're known for. Yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy. But they also have this island that's full of boobaroo. So it is what it is. Unobtainium. Unobtainium. Yes. Okay, yeah. That's that's actually, I, I like that. Yeah. I like that. So then Joe asks, why'd you talk to me so snotty back on the dock? And Patricia says, because you work for my father, and I'm angry with my father, but he's not around to give him a shot. So you work for him. I give you a shot. And Joe asks her why she's angry with him. And she says, because he's never around. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon and all of that. And so Joe asks, if you're angry with him and he's never around, why are you working for him? And she's filled with righteous indignation at this moment. And she's like, I don't work for him. My transport of you is strictly a favor. And Joe's like, you do favors for people you're mad at? That didn't sit well with her. She just sort of lashes back and tells him one more time, with a definitiveness that ends the conversation. I don't work for him. And Joe backs off. And then you get the other reason. There's an ulterior motive with this too. She says that her father had agreed to give her the boat if she did this thing and got him to the island. Patricia is starting to warm up to Joe just a little bit. And she apologizes for being rude earlier. And this is the part where you start getting the idea that she actually likes him. And they make plans to do some fishing the next day. But for right now, it's pretty much time for lights out. Joe's quarters are below decks. And I've always been impressed with the amount of space that you get on a wind jammer. It doesn't look like there's a lot, but there's actually a lot of space. Mm -hmm. So he's got a really, really comfortable place to settle in. The next day, they have this conversation where Patricia is wearing her heart on her sleeve way more than you would expect after just 24 hours with this person. But she obviously sees something in him and she trusts him and she's comfortable with him. And she tells him, I love my sister. I know she's screwed up. I love my father, even though I never see him and he's not so great when I do see him. I'm very nervous about this trip. My father didn't tell me anything and you don't seem to be telling me anything, but it's more than that. I've always kept clear of my father's stuff since I got out on my own, and now he's pulled me back in. He knew I wanted this boat, and he used it, and he got me working for him, which I swore I would never do. 
I feel ashamed because I had a price. Well, you know, doesn't that go right back to the whole business of I sold my life to you for 300 bucks a week? Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing right now. It's just from a slightly higher tax bracket. That's all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she says, I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about you, but you're working for him too. And that makes us two of a kind. I could treat you like I did back on the dock, but that would be me kicking myself for selling out, which isn't fair to you. And it doesn't make me feel any better. I like the way she thinks. I yeah. very much like the way Patricia thinks. And I think that she compliments him really well. Joe comes across as kind of simple, but he yeah. does have a lot of depth. There are things that are hiding underneath all of the quiet desperation with this guy. Mm-hmm. And she sees it and starts drawing it out of him. And she says, I don't know what your situation is, but I wanted you to know what mine is. Not just to explain some rude behavior, but because we're on a little boat for a while And this really hit me when I heard it the first time. She says, I'm soul sick and you're going to see that like my sister. She's soul sick too. And then she makes a comment about his character and that it kind of impressed her that when her sister threw herself at him as she knew she would, that Joe didn't take the bait. He earned big points with her because of that. And Joe just sort of looks at her and says, I'm glad you believe me. And in the context of, no, I didn't sleep with your sister. I'm glad you believe me. And it becomes apparent at this point, at least it did to me, it became really apparent at this point that in this very, very short expanse of time, this girl is falling for this guy. And she's falling for him hard. (laughs) And at this point, she has no idea what he's going to the island to do. So Mm -hmm. she's kind of letting the feels flow. Now we get this happy, dopey little scene where they engage in the aforementioned fishing and Joe reels in a hammerhead. It freaks him out. It's just a funny little scene that I'm glad that they put in there. Yeah. And then you get, uh, I don't even remember the actress's name. All I will ever know her as is Honey Bunny from from Pulp Pulp Fiction. Fiction. Yeah. And she is like, I think she's like the first mate. Her name is Dagmar. And she's having a really, really good time watching the goings-on. And she's part of a very small crew. I think there's like four people. There's four people, including Patricia, that are the crew of this boat. And, I mean, you don't need much more than that for a boat that size. But now we get to hear another pretty deep conversation between Patricia and Joe. And this is, to me, one of the more pivotal moments in this movie. And we're finally going to bring it around to you know the subject of this podcast just a little bit. Joe asks her, are you used to this? And she is kind of having trouble with the context of the question. And Joe clarifies. He says, are you used to this, the ocean and the stars? And Patricia is like, you never get used to it. Why do you think I want this boat? All I want to do is sail away. And that's an interesting take that she has on that. It's like, no, this actually never gets old. And that's what I like about it. (laughs) Yeah. And Joe asks her in her effort to just sail away, he asks where she would go. And I like this answer too. She says, away from the things of man. And let me tell you, I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate. I love my job. I love what I do. I can absolutely positively say that I'm the happiest in my work that I have ever been in my life. But I feel this. Yeah. You know, there are situations and people that it would be nice to just be away from the things of man for a little while and not have to worry about them, think about them, or deal with them. 
And then Joe just sort of lays this one out on the table. He says, do you believe in God? And again, I love her response. She says, I believe in myself. And Joe says, what does that mean? And she says, I have confidence in myself. And you know, when you have confidence in yourself, it's much, much harder to be swayed by things like the gospel. When you have a little bit of self-esteem, when you have a sense of who you are, when you have enough belief in yourself that you don't need it, you're not going to be open to it. And that is where Patricia is in her life at that point. She doesn't need belief. She just needs her. And Joe says, I've done a lot of soul searching lately. I've been asking myself some tough questions. And you know what I've found out? I have no interest in myself. I think about myself and I get bored out of my mind. So she presses. She says, what does interest you? And he says, I don't know. And then he thinks about it for a second and says, courage. Courage interests me. And apparently that's true. Otherwise, why would we be here right now? Mm -hmm. So she says, you're going to spend the rest of your life on a tiny island in the South Pacific. And Joe says, well, up till now, I've lived on a tiny island called Staten Island. And I've commuted to a job in a shut up room with pumped in air, no sunshine, despicable people. And now that I've got some distance from that situation, that seems pretty unbelievable. It's amazing how when you get out of situations like that and you're finally on the outside looking in, that's when you realize how bad it was. Yeah. And it's true with his work situation. It was true with me when I finally just closed the door on this whole thing called faith. Mm -hmm. So I completely and totally relate to this. Patricia says, my father says almost the whole world is asleep. Oh, God, the deep thoughts that come out in this. This is supposed to be a cute little comedy. But yeah. there's a lot of meat yeah. to some of this dialogue. And this is another part of it. My father says almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. And it's the whole quiet desperation thing. He says only a few people are awake. And they live in a state of constant total amazement. Now, I like to think of myself as awake. <laughs> and I would also hope that as time goes on, I see more of the world in that state of constant, total amazement. Because coming out of faith, things in life seem a lot more amazing to me. Yeah. Life seems a lot more amazing to me, mm -hmm. and it has more value. And I think that this is what she's talking about here in this instance. And they both sit there and they contemplate this for a while. And then Joe decides he's going to have out with it. Let's lose points with two women in like 48 hours. Why not? He says, I have six months to live. The Waponis believe they need a human sacrifice or their island is going to sink into the ocean. They have a mineral that your father wants and he's hired me to jump into their volcano. And she looks at him like he has 10 heads. <laughs> and Joe looks at her and says, you're not going to make me say that again, are you? And Patricia says, no. And that's all she says. And it's very off-putting for him. And he's like, aren't you going to say anything? She says, I don't know what to say. You're telling me you're dying. You tell me that you're jumping into a volcano. My mind is a blank, as mine would be too, yeah. to have that dumped on me in that way and with that level of bluntness. He did it the same way with her as he did with Dee Dee. Just boom, right out with it. So she's going to ask the obvious question here. She's, she asks him if whatever he has is catching and he tells her no. At that point, she is done with the conversation. She gets up, and as she leaves, she says, you know, she, what else is there to say? She's been rendered speechless. She says, good night, and I'll see you in the morning. 
And you can tell that she's just a little put off mm-hmm. by all of this at this point. The reality of his situation and just the diabolical nature of what her father is doing here. Yeah. Preying yeah, that's on, pretty bad. Yeah, preying on somebody who's terminally ill so that he can keep harvesting this mineral. So next morning, we find out that there is a typhoon warning. And the way that this is shot is wicked Hollywood and very overdone, like a lot of things in this movie. But yeah. this is extra overdone. And you can see the storm starting to whip up. And Joe asks, what exactly is a typhoon? To which Patricia responds, you know, Joe, I think you're going to find out. And they do. They all do. The weather started getting rough and the tiny ship was tossed. Patricia is sending out distress calls that seemingly no one is getting. The crew is holding their positions and you have to admire them for that because, well... You only have a few more minutes to admire them before they just disappear from the narrative. And in the middle of all of this, these two legit fall in love. And there's a very Hollywood, we've fallen in love moment between them. Then Patricia gets hit by one of the masts and goes over. She's down for the count and has gone overboard. So what does Joe do? He does precisely what they teach you not to do in situations like this. He goes right in after her. Mm. And he can't find her immediately. But in this vast ocean, he manages to find her. We're talking about an ocean that is experiencing a typhoon. He finds her and pulls her to the surface. And she is still out cold. He turns around and he can see the boat. And the boat is already taking on a lot of water. It's going down one way or another. But then it gets struck by lightning. And the lightning bolt is in the same shape as the corporate logo. Yeah. This shape shows up three times in this movie, at least three times in this movie. At least, yeah. And with that, the ship sinks. But that fucking luggage, man, the luggage that he bought, very durable stuff. Yeah. Because it's about the only thing that survives the shipwreck is these four steamer trunks. So he gathers them together and with a bit of the uh, mooring rope from the boat that's also just sort of floating there, he ties them all together and basically makes a raft out of them. And this is keeping Patricia from going under again. He's got her up on the trunks, and they're both safe. This isn't a Titanic situation where only (laughs) one of them can fit, okay? They're both seemingly okay, aside from the fact that they're adrift on the ocean and no one knows they're there. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, that was money well spent on those trunks. Mm. So uh, they're adrift for a while. Patricia is out for a long while. Like, when we're talking a couple of days at least, yeah. You know, there's a lot of time that passes in this part of it, but you're just getting the highlight reel. So they've been out on the water for quite a while. And Joe is feeding her capfuls of Perrier that were in one of these little travel things that he bought before they left. Everything that was in the steamer trunks survived. So he's got various supplies, including it looks to be a single bottle of Perrier. It came with the violin case. Yes. Bar. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the other things that he buys is this violin case. I'm thinking that he just wanted something nice for his ukulele. But when you open it, it's like a mini bar. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's where the Perrier was. So he's trying to keep her hydrated and he's not drinking anything himself. He's just trying to keep her going. And at one point he turns on the shortwave radio to see if he can figure out where they are. 
but instead decides to stop on some nice doo-wop music and decides that dancing is the better solution than panicking. So he's kind of dancing on the steamer trunks to uh, come and go with me by the Dell Vikings. And by all accounts, a few days go by and Joe is making the best of the situation. I mean, somehow his shaving kit was saved along with his ukulele, those damn trunks, man. He's doing a stellar job of looking after Patricia, keeping her shaded, because another thing that he bought was um, an umbrella. Like a golf umbrella. Yeah, pretty much. And uh, he's using that to protect her from the sun and still pouring Perrier down her throat. I was seriously wondering if she was dead and he was just like in denial. But no, she still had a lot of color and that I think would have been just a little bit too macabre for this particular movie. So no, she's alive. She's just had a time and she's recuperating. Then in a slightly disappointing moment, Joe watches the moon rise in a very overwrought kind of Hollywood sort of way. And unfortunately, he prays. But I kind of like what he says. Mm. I like how the thought trails off with this. He says, dear God, whose name I do not know, thank you for my life. I forgot how big, and the thought just sort of trails off. And again, he just says, thank you for my life. If he had secularized that just a little bit more and gave us a little soliloquy about how he's starting to wake up to how big life is, because that's the rest of the thought. I had forgotten how big this world is and how much there is to experience and what life actually is. That's pretty much what he's saying there. I could have done without it being a prayer, but I can forgive it because the sentiment there is, again, one of those moments in this movie where you don't expect there to be a lot of depth, but it delivers depth. And again, I can forgive this under the circumstances because even in his delirious stammering, what he says is deep. The problem is that he's doing this the other way around from how most people do it. Usually you learn how big the world is and how big life is after you get over the idea of a God. But Joe is a product of his environment, like all of us are, and I find it particularly interesting that he's terminally ill and doesn't blame God for it. He's mastered something that is a real enemy to religion and religious control, and that's a little thing called gratitude. After breaking free of that hideous job, knowing he's going to be dead soon, he takes a good look around, and even when his situation seems particularly grim, he's thankful. I found this part very moving the first time I saw it, and Mm. again, when I had to watch it for this. I think this is a very moving moment, and it says a lot about him, and not his character as in Joe Banks, but in terms of Joe Banks' character. It says a lot about him. But the bottom line is he's starting to give up. He is not hopeful that anything good is going to happen here. Things are not looking good. Patricia is still out. He's giving her all the potable water they have. And he is starting to succumb to the environment. He's sunburned. He is looking very weathered. He's dirty and snarly and just he's not doing well. The next morning, something very interesting happens. Patricia wakes up and proceeds to start tending to him because at this point he needs it. Yeah. And in true Hollywood fashion, they have somehow been drifting toward this island the entire time. 
And in a way, it makes sense, seeing as the seas kind of directed the Waponi there, too. Mm. So I don't know what it is about this place, but it's kind of like a magnet. Yeah. And they've just been drifting toward it this entire time. So they arrive to the great delight of the Waponi. And the music is a reflection of their very hybrid culture, right down to Havanagila in another language. Yeah, that was really weird. It was weird, but it was fitting. If you were paying attention to the description of who these people are, it was fitting. It's just Mm -hmm. also incredibly funny. And their garb is a mix of extreme stereotypes. And of course, the jump soda is flowing like water. (laughs) And... Now we get to meet Abe Vigoda, and he's playing the same role he plays in everything. He's referred to, I forget what what his title is. He says it a little bit later, but mostly he's referred to as the big chief. He's Toby. He's the Toby. That's what it is. And he carries his soul around in a voodoo doll. (laughs) So, you know, that's, that's, uh, (laughs) that's his thing. He's the chief. He's the shaman. He's a lot of things on this island. So at this point, the plan is laid out. There's going to be a big feast that night. And then Joe is going to take his dive and everything's going to be okay. Time is of the essence. So it's just time to get to it. The volcano is about to erupt. So they have to do this tonight. So the next scene, the first thing I thought of here was the arrival at Emerald City. Yeah. You're that Dorothy, the witch's Dorothy. Well, come on in and let's uh, clean you up a little bit. And that's what they do. There's a lot of primping and pampering going on. Patricia is just eating it all up. It's making Joe very uncomfortable. He is not digging this anywhere near as much as well, she is. They're also being really mean to him. I don't know about mean. It's just that there's there's a more masculine edge to what they're doing. And there is more of a playfulness about it. Yeah. Whereas with Patricia, it's kind of like girls night in. Yeah. You know, it's like the precursor to a big slumber party. Yeah. With her. So there are differences. I wouldn't say that they were being mean. I just think that they were they they were they were kind of hazing him a little bit, I guess. Yeah. That's the way that I would uh I would yeah. describe what's going on. But when he's had enough, they let up too. He tells them that he's had enough and also has the nerve to tell them that he feels great at the end of all of that. Mm-hmm. It's like it was the pre-AOL days, but he's literally being slapped about with a large trout. That's yes. part of it. <laughs> Yeah, that that definitely is part of it. So night falls and the festivities have kind of come to a head. And now the ritual begins. Well, there really really isn't much of a ritual. They do their dance about the Waponi Wu. That's the beginning and end of the ritual. He even asks the Toby if there's any kind of ritual. And he's like, nah, you just jump in. Joe is dressed to the nines. He's wearing his Armani tux. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, well, he's dressed in his best and prepared to go down as a gentleman. Yeah, I guess. So I like the way that the chief's speech is delivered in the script a little bit better than it is here. But here's what he says in the actual movie. He says, Joe Banks, we are the children of children. Aren't we all? Hmm. We're the children of somebody's children. And we live as we are shown. Not sure precisely what that's supposed to mean. Now a change has come. The Waponis like the soda, and no one among my people will jump into the big woo. They trade with this man, your father, for a hero. We have no hero of our own. I am the Toby. I cannot be the hero. It is my place to hope for my people. But the woo calls, and no one from among my people says, I will go to my end for the rest of you. Now, in the script, there's an extra line in here where the chief actually discourages him from doing this literally tells him 
to just abandon the whole thing and go to that island over there and just don't jump into the big whoa. I kind of wish they had left it in because it leaves a hole in something that Patricia says later. But there's also another line in the script that I like where he talks about how Patricia's father drills holes in their island the way that the soda drills holes in their teeth. Mm. Which, you know, I think that's an interesting juxtaposition of ideas. Yeah. And that's not in there either. That disappointed me. When we do these movies, we try to find the script so that we can isolate the lines that we want and not have to sit there and feverishly type them. (laughs) And that's when you learn what the movie looks like on paper and what it became after the director and editor and other parties involved had their way with changing things around. I really do wish that they had left that line in because it just puts more of a period on the kind of scumbag this guy is. Yeah. He is a scumbag. Oh, yeah. He's terrible. We don't even know how much of a scumbag yet. Yeah. And we're going to find out. So Joe tells the chief, I have no people of my own chief. I'm my only hope for a hero. Then he just lets out his battle cry and yells so that everybody can hear. He says, take me to the volcano. And they do. And Patricia follows them. She's looking at him like, you're not seriously going to do this, are you? And she's looking at him like she's thinking that this is all a dream. This really isn't happening, is it? But it is. And she kind of follows the procession. She's trying to catch up with him. And as they pan back, you see the path to the volcano. And again, it's that crooked, really creepy looking lightning bolt. It's the exact same thing. And Patricia finally catches up to them. Once they get to the volcano, she pushes her way through the crowd and says, don't do it. Please don't do it, Joe. I love you. I've fallen in love with you. I've never loved anybody. I don't know how it happened. And I've never even slept with you or anything. And now you're going to kill yourself? And Joe pulls her to her feet. And the chief kind of steps away to give them a little bit of privacy. And Joe says, you love me? And Patricia says, yes, I love you. I can feel my heart. I feel like I'm going crazy. You can't die and leave me here on this stinking earth without you. And Joe says, I've got to do it. I've wasted my whole life and now I'm going to die. I've got a chance to die like a man and I'm going to take it. I've got to take it. And again, she says, I love you. And Joe says, I love you too. I've never been in love with anybody either. It's great. I'm glad. But the timing stinks. And he proceeds to basically walk up to the gangplank. There's a gangplank that leads into the mouth of this volcano. So he's about to jump, and Patricia makes a final request. She says she wants to get married. And Joe is like, I don't want to get married. And she's like, you're going to have to love me and honor me for like 30 seconds. What are you, afraid of the commitment or something? (laughs) So, yeah, I, I can sort of see her point. And he does, too. It's like, fuck it, let's just do this. So in the most anticlimactic way possible, the chief marries them. Do you want to marry her? Yeah. Do you want to marry him? Yeah. You're married. And that's it. That's the whole ceremony. That's the nuptials in a nutshell. Nutshell nuptials. I like that. So now the chief literally turns to the camera and says, I'm going now. He's had enough. He's had enough. He's washing his hands of this whole thing and he's leaving. So the newly married Joe makes his way to the edge of the platform and Patricia follows him. Whithersoever thou go, I goest, I think is the line that she uses there. And so they're standing there 
at the precipice of the volcano and they're looking down into this fiery pit. And again, Patricia comes out with something that I find to be really just mind blowing in this moment. She looks down into the volcano and she says, no one knows anything. We'll take this leap and we'll see. We'll just jump and we'll see. And Joe says, what are we hoping for here? And she says, a miracle. And he kind of scoffs at that because he may believe in God, but he's not stupid. So they decide that they're going to jump together. Or she decides that they're going to jump together. He takes her hand. And again, she says, we'll just jump and see what happens. So they jump. And the volcano basically just spits them out. Literally spits them out pretty much unscathed. They get catapulted back into the ocean where, I mean, under any normal circumstance, this would have killed them. Yeah. This alone would have killed them. But they just sort of splash into the ocean like it ain't no thing. And they surface and they watch as the big woo crumbles, along with daddy's hope of harvesting any more of that boobaroo. Sadly, it's also the end of the Waponi, which I do think is kind of sad. Yeah. But Joe is concerned that they're going to drown. But Patricia is a little bit more optimistic. And she's like, no, we're not going to drown. We're going to be fine. And then out of nowhere, there's that fucking luggage again. It just surfaces. And again, they've got the means to stay safe. And at this point is where they have the brain cloud conversation. Yeah. You know, she asks him, finally asks him what this is all about. And he drops the name of the doctor, which gives her pause. Apparently, Dr. Elliston is her father's doctor. And not only is he her father's doctor, her father is his only patient. She says, my father owns Dr. Elliston. So he has no other patients. That means that this guy has had his eye on Joe for a while. And he was just waiting for that right moment where the timeline was right for him to do this. And that was when he threw the pitch. So... Of course, now Patricia has to shame him just a little bit because he's like, Patricia tells him that he's been duped. It's like, he completely played you and there's nothing wrong with you. And Joe is like, you know, maybe I should have gotten a second opinion. It's like, yeah, you think you might have needed a second opinion on something called a brain cloud? And there's this little conversation about that. But this is basically where the movie ends. She talks about how romantic it all is. She's like, who gets a honeymoon like this? And it's like, well, you're out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know if you have any food left in those steamer trunks. And I have no idea how they plan on getting back to anywhere. See, in the script, there's another island nearby. But that's never mentioned in the movie. And they even mention at the end that they're like a thousand miles from nowhere. So... I don't know where the happy ending comes from here, but this is clearly a happy ending. And the last line is my favorite here. Joe tells her, wherever we go, whatever we do, we're going to take this luggage with us. (laughs) And I think that that's good policy. Good policy. Absolutely. And with that, we end the story of Joe versus the volcano. So now, like I always do when we get to the end of our movie episodes, I'm going to give you the synopsis of what I think it was about and how it relates to what we talk about around here. Watching this movie again, after a lot of years, I seriously started to wonder if maybe, just maybe there was more depth to the messaging here than I ever gave this movie credit for. And I kind of think that there is. Let's start with Joe and his role in the plot. 
What was Joe to the Waponi? Well, he was their savior, wasn't he? He was there to jump into that volcano of his own free will. His sacrifice was completely on him. He saw a need and decided to meet that need, even knowing that it had everything to do with one person's selfish intent. He knew, but that wasn't the only need that he saw. He saw Granamore's need to keep harvesting the minerals so his business could thrive, but he also saw the fate of these people if he didn't take action. It was the same kind of selflessness that he displayed as a firefighter. Joe's entire life, or at least the life he chose, was that of a savior already. So whether it's running into a burning building to save a family or jumping into a volcano to save an entire culture, he was beyond willing to do it. But in the end, the volcano rejected him. Why? The message here, I think, is that you can't rely on other people to fix your problems. You can't just lay it all at the feet of an individual. You have to take responsibility. You have to deal with reality. And the reality was that this volcano was going to swallow up the island and take all the people with it. None of the Waponi were willing to be their own people's paschal lamb, even after being given multiple opportunities. And I found it comical that the chief gave them one last opportunity while their tuxedoed savior was standing there minutes from taking care of things himself. Who's going to volunteer as tribute at that point? Come on. Mm. The volcano didn't want a scapegoat. It wanted the Waponi to take responsibility for their situation, and they didn't. They were too selfish and too scared, so they looked to an outsider, one who seemed neither selfish nor scared, and they laid the burden at his feet. Well, we know how that turned out. I find Joe's anger as he rage quits his job to be a lot like how I felt the first time I rage quit God. I've been too chicken shit and afraid to live my life, so I sold it to you for 300 freaking dollars a week. Well, I allowed myself to be convinced that I was a dirty sinner, that my life was meaningless without Jesus, so I went to that altar and sold it to him and didn't even get 300 bucks a week out of the deal. Yeah. That's the grim reality of a lot of people's situations, and it becomes worse when they spend their entire lives praying and serving this non-entity only to have things come up empty for them in the end and just like a lot of people out there i was convinced that my life was unmanageable without the aid of this deity Mm -hmm. and i was in a lot of ways afraid to go it alone so what did i do i sold my life to jesus and just went about the business of doing his bid while all the while knowing just how dismal the prospect was and yes i knew i always knew i was always too fucking smart for that religion But I had this little thing called hope that maybe, just maybe, there was going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And, well, we never found it, did we? No. We never did. I was anything but happy during that part of my life. And I felt slighted over and over and over again. I felt slighted. When Joe was met with the reality of his mortality, he stopped looking at the safety nets and figured out that things like happiness and contentment with life weren't unattainable. Lots of people have these kinds of epiphanies when they're diagnosed with terminal illnesses. And this is kind of what Joe did. He had the chance to enjoy his last days and he jumped on it. Getting the diagnosis didn't make Joe a better person, but it did bring out the best of him in a lot of ways. His unwavering nonchalance through all of it was enough to make me wonder if he really got what was about to happen to him. But plenty of the lines in this movie confirm that he did. Even when shit turned completely sour, he couldn't help thinking about Patricia before himself. He's 
perfect savior material, but there's no such thing as a perfect savior. And acting the savior almost never works out in our favor. For Joe, however, it did. And I think he deserved that acknowledgement from the big woo. For once, the savior was rewarded and the hapless sheep got their wake up call. I don't wish ill of people of faith, but I sure don't see the bad in having them watch their faith crumble around them if that's the wake-up call it takes to understand a thing or two. So, as a final takeaway here, take a few cues from Joe. Be selfless. Be a giver. Do good things for others. It has rewards that you might never see, but the rewards are there. Be grateful for the life that you have. There's no need to thank a deity for it. It's just kind of here, and we have our lives despite the insurmountable odds that exist in this universe that, by all accounts, are completely hostile to our very existences. In the end, though, understand that you matter too, and that in your efforts to do for others, it's important to see your own needs and wants once in a while. I'm glad that Joe found someone who was able to point out his value. I'm glad that he found love, and I'm glad that it wasn't just a 30-second marriage. In the end, we all need to take Patricia's advice when it comes to life, tough choices, and facing the unknown. Life does not grant us any guarantees. I think her words are kind of the foundation for Life 101. No one knows anything. Take the leap and see what happens. There is no peace or resolution of conflict in letting someone else make sacrifices on our behalf. We live within the structure of our situations and things can change drastically, either for the better or for the worse at any time. You can't guarantee a good future by saying a prayer and waiting to die, nor can you escape death by letting someone else die for you. We have to deal with the uncertainties and eventualities of life, and we can't put the burden of our problems on other people's shoulders, not even a deity's. Because as the Waponi learned the hard way, it just doesn't work that way. And as Joe put it, wherever we go, we're taking this baggage with us. Forget any notion of someone or something saving you. Face life head on. Be grateful for the life that you have and deal with the raging volcanoes you face in life, understanding that if you have the means to change your situation, it's you that needs to do it. Learning to think about life and the problems we face from that perspective gets things done. Moreover, it keeps us on the path to getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.